Our Old Testament reading is from Exodus chapter 8, verses 20 through 32. And here we are continuing in the Exodus story of God getting his people out of slavery in Egypt. And at this point, we are several plagues in and the people are still not out. And so we continue with God displaying his power over all the gods of Egypt, demonstrating that he is the one who should be listened to and obeyed. And yet, also we see this as a time of hardening of Pharaoh's heart, who refuses to listen no matter what he sees or hears. So before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made, and God, we do thank you for your word, and God, we pray that you would... um, Give us soft hearts, not hard. God, that we would pay attention to what you have said, that we would hear your word and be ready to respond rightly. God, we are by nature rebellious and often want to do uh, the opposite of what we're told just because we're told. God, soften our hearts. Lord, make us ready to hear your word and respond rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus chapter 8, verses 20 through 32. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials. Throughout Egypt, the land was ruined by the flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God here in the land. But Moses said, That would not be right. The sacrifices we offer the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commanded us, as he commands us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Moses answered, As soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord, and tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only let Pharaoh be sure that he does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained. But this time also, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Turning then to our gospel reading in Mark, chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Jesus began speaking in the temple courts to the chief priests 
and the teachers of the law and the elders. And it says, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some, some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. We are continuing in our series through the book of Revelation, which as we have been calling it, this series that is, God's victory in Christ revealed to the church. That's what this book is all about. And uh, we've been talking about how it uses visionary language, dreamlike logic, uh, lots of you know images and pictures that are kind of like uh, how we read or how we interpret political cartoons today, where you can see these images and you know what they mean because that's what they just mean in our uh, in our context today. And so we see a lot of these kinds of things. We've also talked about how uh, Revelation uses an awful lot of its imagery and references from uh, the Old Testament and in language that would have been very familiar uh, to those who were very familiar with the Old Testament. And, uh, and a lot of times when he's making these references, he's not making them explicit. He doesn't say, you know, as the prophet Ezekiel says, and then quote it. Matthew does that quite a bit in his gospel. You'll be reading along and I'll be like, as so-and-so says, here's where it is. In Revelation, he just like drops a line and you're like, wait, that sounds familiar. That, does that come from somewhere? And you go look it up and you're like, oh my goodness. Yes, it does. And he's doing this all over the place. Like the, the words and the language, the imagery is all wrapped together and it's full of references to the Old Testament. In the same way, that I could say to you, um, that's one small step for man. And you automatically know the context and the rest of the line, and I didn't even tell you what I was talking about. But you know it, right? You immediately go there because that's just a part of, all, of our culture. That is what we are familiar with. We know that line. And um, same kind of thing for those, if you're really familiar with the Old Testament, you start reading in Revelation, and like every line is that kind of a reference. Where you read this line, oh my goodness, that's like in what is in uh, Zechariah. Oh my goodness, that's like in Daniel. Oh my goodness, that's like, 
And it's just every line. That's exactly what was happening in Exodus. That's exactly what was going on in Genesis. That's the same thing. And you have all of these references that are just popping like crazy. Anyway, one of the things that we have not really discussed, though, so we've talked about all that. One of the things we have not really discussed with Revelation yet that really comes to, into play today is the time factor. Have any of you seen the movie Dunkirk? Yeah? Okay. I don't know if it's your kind of thing. If you want to go watch that, maybe it is, maybe it's not. But it's a well-made movie. And the first time I watched it, it, I liked it, but I was awfully confused by an awful lot of it. <laughs> and then in between the first time I watched it and the second time I watched it, I read something about it that totally changed how I viewed the movie. And here's the deal. It's a um, movie, it's World War II, and it's, um, yeah, the Battle of Dunkirk, but it's, uh, they're on the beach and they got to try to get the people off the beach because they're just sitting ducks where they are and all this kind of stuff. And so you, there are things happening though on the land, on the beach, there are things happening on the waters they are trying to cross the channel and there are things happening in the air as you got fighter pilots who are trying to defend the area and all those things are happening and they're showing them just kind of cutting back and forth between one and the other. And I was really confused by the timeline of the events of the movie. And then before I watched it a second time, I read something where it was explained, oh, yeah, what's going on here is what takes place on the beach happens over the course of a week. What takes place in the water happens over the, over the course of a day. And what takes place in the air happens over the course of an hour. And they cut back and forth with the camera from all these different things. And so I was totally lost. Like I assumed we're just moving forward in time and we were not. <laughs> and there was all this jumping around. So I watch it again a second time after reading that going, well, maybe it'll make a little bit more sense this time. Oh my goodness. That really helped. <laughs> and it's not like they hid this from me in the movie, in the movie, when it starts showing stuff on the, it's like, the on the beach one week like it puts those words on the screen <laughs> and then later it's on it's one day one hour those words are on the screen i should have been able to pick up on that i completely missed it the first time through and was so lost second time through watch it knowing that and then it was, it was cutting from one thing to the next i'm like oh yeah and then i was able to even see really cool connections between there's one time where you're on the boat no no you're in the you're in the plane and you're uh, flying over this boat well, then later on in the movie, you're on the boat and you're seeing that plane fly over in that same. So cool. Anyway, again, I don't know if that's your kind of thing, but a perfect illustration, though, for what's going on in the book of Revelation as we are constantly jumping in time and we're not just going through everything in the order that we might expect going into it. And so once that gets pointed out, it's like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. And so we've already looked at the opening of seven seals of the scroll that's like, how is this all going to go down? How are we going to get from a uh, creation that was good, but that has been destroyed in so many ways, broken down? How do we get back to a good creation again, where people are in right relationship with God and with each other and with all of creation? How does that happen? How do you get that restored? And so we've started we see the, um, the breaking of these seals and what is revealed there. And when we get to the end there was this pattern of uh, the first six seals. And at the end of the sixth one, we're like, oh, this looks like final judgment is just around the corner. 
Who can stand? Who can survive in this final judgment? And then we're told it's those basically who are in Christ. And then we get the final judgment. Well, now we go to the trumpets. And you're like, well, why are we now doing something else after the final judgment? And we're not. It's actually we're going back. That was like the one uh, the one week. Now we're going to go to the one uh, hour or one day. And then later we'll get the bowls that are more like the one hour. And it's like we're starting the same story but a little further along and from a different perspective. And that's where we are in uh, Revelation chapter 8, starting in verse 6. We already had in verse 1 or 2, uh, verse 2, the angels with trumpets that have been introduced. And now they're going to start doing stuff. This is Revelation chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. And yes, uh, the imagery is strange and dream logic is happening and there are lots of images. Here we go. Then the seven angels who, held, who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the, star, a third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars. So the third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. There we go. You follow all that? Maybe. I would say the more familiar you are with the entirety of the Old Testament, probably the more you're able to follow that because every line in there, again, is like that one small step for man and you just catch it if you know the reference. And uh, and what we are seeing here, did, did you catch the mathematical part of it? There was a fraction that just kept showing up. What was it? It was one-third, right? <laughs> yeah, this is... We're seeing a progression that's taking place. In uh, the seals, we saw there was one point where one-fourth of the people uh, had died, and now we're getting into a one-third, and then we would expect there to be a one-half, and then a the whole thing, if we're just going to go up that way. We kind of get that, but we also kind of don't. And when we get to why we don't, I'll explain that. But we're seeing this progression in, um, in the destructive as we get to kind of, as we approach final judgment um, language. And did you notice anything else, any connection to anything else in the whole of the Old Testament, any stories that you're familiar with as you hear these trumpets blast and these uh, things are showing up? Sound familiar to the plagues of Egypt? Oh, yeah. If you know what all the plagues of Egypt are, 
And then you read this. There's so much connection between the two. But what was a plague on Egypt to get the people out of, to get the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt is now a plague that is coming on the world in a way that is the intent, (laughs) um, not necessarily to get um, the people out of the world as much as it is to get the world out of the people. (laughs) And this is something that's been said about, um, about the Israelites coming out of Egypt is it seemed like it was a much easier thing for God to get the people out of Egypt than it was to get Egypt out of the people. (laughs) And the same thing here is um, there is a worldliness that we are all kind of infected with. So how do we get that out of us? And, um, And this is part of what's going on through this whole book as we're seeing how God is doing that in us, through us, and, um, and through the work of Jesus in our lives. When we get the language of the plagues, another thing to remember, though, is we're supposed to be going back in our minds to what happened in Egypt. And there were a couple different things that happened when the plagues are coming. Is One is the Israelites were to see, oh my goodness, God is the one true God. He is amazing. He is more powerful than any of these Egyptian gods. We should turn to him. We should trust him. We should do what he says. But then there are the Egyptians who are seeing the same signs. And like Pharaoh, they see that God is more powerful than all the other gods, that he really is the one true God. And yet they harden themselves against it and against who he is and, um, and his ways. And they're like, no. We're still going to do our things our ways. We don't care what you do. It does not matter. We are digging our heels in, and that is that. And this is, um, <clears throat> this is the same kind of thing that we're seeing here, even uh, in the destruction of wickedness itself. We still see this hardening and this digging in of the heels, the hardening of the heart, the saying, I don't care. I'm still doing things my way. And so as, um, and going back even further, the other thing that we're seeing here is a, a picture of Genesis chapter one again, but this time kind of in reverse. Did you notice that? That we have things like the sun and moon and stars being darkened. We have the waters that we're good now being bitter. We're having the, uh, the vegetation on the earth being burned up. This is like you're reading Genesis chapter one and how God is creating all these things in this way. And now it's like all those are getting undone. And it takes us back to what we uh, watched a couple weeks ago of the video of the art restoration project where you see this painting. And before you can actually begin to restore the painting uh, in a way that looks good, there's a lot that has to be removed. And so we're seeing that uh, taking place here as God is undoing things in the created order. And then we get uh, verse 13, an eagle that's flying in midair calling out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. This inhabitants of the earth is really this phrase that's talking about those who 
the worldliness is in them. It's not so much that they are in the world as much as the world is in them. And it says, woe, woe, woe. Now, earlier on, we looked at um, beings crying out to God, holy, holy, holy. Remember that? Holy, holy, holy. And one of the reasons that they're crying out, holy, 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 is that's the way that you would say. It's like how we have... um, big, bigger, biggest. (laughs) We have that way of saying things. There's uh, another way of doing that, which is just to, instead of adding the ending on, you just say the word multiple times. And so kind of the Hebrew way of doing that was you say it twice for emphasis and you say it three times if it is the maximum. So it would be like the big, bigger, biggest. So you kind of like holy, Okay, this is holy. Oh, there's holy of holies. Oh, but then God himself is actually holy, holy, holy. Holiest. And here we have the same kind of language, but in a much worse way. And so here it is, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. You can't get any more woe (laughs) than this. And so what is coming is not going to be good for those who still have the world in them. And um, this, by the way, all of this should also kind of sound familiar in the language of Jesus, who, um, who also talks about how things uh, will be. And, um, and there's a parable he tells in uh, Mark chapter 13, that I think is helpful for us in this. Because there he's, he talks about things where he says, so be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time, but in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the heavenly bodies will be shaken. That sounds familiar language, doesn't it? And what is the point of Jesus telling all this? It always goes back to, so be ready. Like if you know that this is the way that things are going, if you know that despite all appearances, the world is headed this direction. So sometimes it might look like it's headed this direction. Sometimes it might not. But if you know that it is live accordingly, be ready now. And so Jesus tells this parable and says, you know, when that's going to be, who knows? He says, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. And so uh, when we are reading these things in Revelation and we go, my goodness, this is kind of some freaky stuff. And oh, we haven't even gotten to all the freaky stuff yet. There is more to come. Um, But remember, there is a point to all of it. And it is a revelation of God's victory uh, in Christ and how one day 
all will be made right again. All will be made well again. And that the point for us is to be ready for that. How do we do that? He says, well, it's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task. In other words, when he leaves, he doesn't just go, y'all have a good time. I'll be back later. (laughs) He says, here's what you're supposed to do. Here's what you're supposed to do. And he says, now think about this. If that's the situation and the owner comes back and they're not doing that stuff, that's not good, right? That's what they've been left to do. (laughs) But if he comes back and they are doing those things, that's a good thing. So then the question is, you know, if we're going to be ready, what does it mean? It means to be doing what he's given us to do. C.S. Lewis once wrote a piece on uh, how Christians are to live in the nuclear age where um, basically there's this constant threat of nuclear annihilation at any moment. Everybody just wiped out. It's like, so how are Christians supposed to live? And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll <laughs> kind of sum up. Basically, he said, the way Christians have always lived, doing the things that Jesus has left us to do. <laughs> That's what we do. So that if the time comes when, you know, uh, either by a nuclear bomb or any other event, when the time is up for us, like, I hope that we're found doing the things that we're supposed to be doing instead of hiding in a bunker somewhere, not doing anything. <laughs> and I think those are good words for us to remember, especially when we consider what it is that Jesus has given us to do. In Matthew chapter 28, after Jesus is raised from the dead, this is what we call the Great Commission. And if, as I'm about to read this, you're like, oh, I already know this. Good. I hope you do. <laughs> I hope we all know this and know it well. This is when Jesus came to his disciples and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What is it that we have been left to do? Make disciples by baptizing and teaching. So how is it that we are to be ready for whatever comes? making disciples <laughs> and baptizing and teaching, helping other people to follow, to come to know Jesus and learn to follow him well. That in so doing, the worldliness would get out of us. That the worldliness would get out of those that we minister to. And therefore, the woe, woe, woe that's coming in the next three trumpets wouldn't be what anyone has to face.
There's a lot more in what we just read than we have time to fully unpack. Do you want to talk about more of it? I'd love to. But for now, let's just keep in mind, this is where things are headed. Let's be ready. Let's be obedient. And let's be making disciples. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.